so we're going to do a little summer series. Uh, we finished our series in 1 Peter last week. Just encourage you to go back and listen if you missed any weeks, um, you know, because it builds and builds. And I uh, really enjoyed it, actually, just going through that book a bit deeper, studying it, and just so much truth in there. Um, over the summer, we're doing a series called Stories uh, Jesus Told. And uh, so we're looking at some of the, the parables, some of the things that Jesus said. He often used stories and metaphors to, to make points. I'd love it if everyone had a Bible in front of Wendy, have we got some spare Bibles at the back there? Um, if you haven't got a Bible and you want to follow along, just pop your hand up. Um, the signal's not very good in here, so if you try and use your app Bible, it may not work. But um, if you want a paper Bible, these, these things, anyone knows what they are? Um, bit traditional, but um, really good to, to be able to see it in front of you. Put your hand up and Wendy will bring one round. Um, feel free to have a free Bible on Grace Church as well. If you don't own a paper one, recommend having one. Um, are you okay to click for me, Ed? I'll put that out there. It just, just confuses me, trying to multitask. Um, so we're looking at Matthew uh, chapter 7. So if you want to go there, verse 24 to 29. And um, I'll start with a little story, though. Uh, a few years ago, when we were kids, we used to go to a place called Greatstone in Kent in the summer holidays. And we go there for about three weeks. My grandfather had a house down there, lovely open beaches and uh, lots of space to build sandcastles. And um, I uh, remember when we were kids, it was really hard work building anything half decent. And, um, but as we got a bit older, my cousins and my brother, we decided we were going to have a, a men's trip to the beach and go and rekindle our youth. And uh, I couldn't find a photo anywhere. I'm sure I've got one somewhere. Uh, but we decided to build the biggest sandcastle you've ever seen. And uh, we got our massive garden spades out. And uh, you know what it's like for kids, your little spades, it takes forever, doesn't it, to build something like that. Well, we had these huge spades and uh, spent about four hours uh, building something. I reckon we shoveled a, a few ton of sand and uh, built this enormous thing ready for the tide to come in. And uh, it was quite impressive, I must say. And uh, we were utterly exhausted. Uh, we had blisters all over our hands. We've been preparing it for weeks. And um, so we had this huge thing, and we built walls around it, and then we had this massive mound in the middle, and then we did a bit of decorative stuff at the end because we got bored, and, uh, and then started waiting for the water to come in. And uh, it was really wonderful. We had a really good time. It was utterly exhausting. And uh, the sea came in, and uh, we got up the next day to go and have a look at our handiwork, and it was gone. Um, very sad to say. And so it felt like a lot of work for nothing. And the reason I tell you that is because we're going to be looking at this story that Jesus told uh, this morning about the wise and foolish builders. And uh, we had a lot of fun, so we weren't completely foolish that day, but we were foolish to think that it might still be standing when we came out the next morning um, because the sea had washed it away. So let's read this together. So Matthew chapter 7, uh, verse 24 and just to set the context, Jesus has just given the Sermon on the Mount. And so very sort of famous uh, part of Jesus' ministry. It's in front of all the people. He's up there um, it, on the hill talking to everyone, particularly his disciples, and saying, you know, these are, the, these are the things that the kingdom of heaven is all about. And he's taking the law and all the stuff that's been said in the Old Testament, and he's taking it to a whole new level um, of morality. And and really wonderful teachings that, that have shaped our laws and the, the lives that we live today. Um, and so he's just given that. And then he, he then says these words in verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, so his teaching, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man 
who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And so Jesus is, uh, is basically beginning his ministry really here, and he, it's, it's kind of, it's sort of a parable. I think there's more parables to come where they're more explicit, but um, particularly his disciples are intrigued by the way that he uses language, by the way that he talks about things. Rather than speaking plainly, he uses stories uh, to explain what he's saying. And so in Matthew 13, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? And he replied, so this is Matthew 13, verse 10, if you want to follow. He replied, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, to his disciples, those that believe in him. Whoever has it has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. And then he quotes from Isaiah in the Old Testament. Um, was a, he was a prophet who, who spoke these things over the people of Israel. He said, those seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's hearts become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are you, blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see. Did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And so really, as we we look at the parable again in more detail, I wanted to sort of quote that bit because there is something about revelation from God. When God speaks to his people, when he teaches us what he's like, it's, it's not always obvious and plain up front. And the most obvious reading is not always the thing that is most obvious, which is why people can look at it and misunderstand it. And Jesus is making it clear that actually there is something of God's spirit that brings truth. And so I want to just pray before we go into this in a bit more detail. And my hope is that, that actually when we hear this, we won't be like the Pharisees, the Pharisees who were offended by Jesus. They heard the words and said, oh, no, that's terrible. How can he, how can he say those things? It's an offense to them. We won't be like the Greeks or the Romans who heard it. Say, oh, yeah, he's, like, he's interesting. He's got some good points. You know, maybe they resonate a little bit with it. But actually, they didn't want to really know him and hear what he had to say. And so let me pray for us. And because I believe it's a work of God's Spirit to, to speak to us today. And so, Holy Spirit, I just want to invite you here this morning again. You, you've been here throughout our worship. Lord, you are alive in, in us. And I pray, Lord, will you open our ears this morning to hear what you would say. Lord, I pray, will you use my mouth to speak truth, not to say the wrong things, Lord, even for me to misunderstand this, Lord. I pray that the truth will be revealed this morning, Lord. It is a work of your spirit, Lord, and I pray that people will open their hearts to you this morning, Lord, that people will want to hear the truth, Lord, that where we've deceived ourselves or been taught wrong things, Lord, I pray you'll expose lies this morning, Lord, that the truth will come and the truth will set people free. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I feel it's really important to do that. I've been praying about this this morning. Just I really want God to speak to us through this. And, and I think even as I prepared this, I kind of misunderstood it. And it was almost like this morning, it, God just gave me fresh, fresh revelation into it. So let's have a look at it. We're going to do a little bit uh, line by line. We're going to compare the, the wise and the foolish 
builders and, uh, and see what we can learn from it. So verse 24, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. In other words, this story is actually more than just hearing the words, but it's about doing something with them. And we call that obedience. Again, even that word obedience can kind of jar us a little bit. And so we're looking for obedience this morning to what Jesus is saying, not just resonance where, oh yeah, I kind of get that and it sounds nice. Um, So we want to look at something. What can we take away from this? So let's start with the foolish man. So in verse 26 says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice, it's like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And there's the same story in Luke chapter 6. And it says um, in this when he talks about the foolish one, uh, I will show you what they're like. They're like a man building a house who, uh, sorry, next bit. But the one who hears my words does not put them into practice, like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. That's the other way that Luke records this. And it says the moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. And so the comparison I really want to make is the difference between resonance, that is hearing something, and obedience. And that is hearing what's actually being said and doing something about it. And so as we compare the two, hopefully that will become more clear. And so the foolish man, let's look at him. He heard the words of Jesus. It says that, doesn't it? It says, but... Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man. So it's not that the foolish man didn't hear. It's not that, well, he's a fool because he didn't hear Jesus. No, he heard Jesus. It's possible that there are people sat here this morning. You have heard Jesus. You've read your Bible. You've been to church. And yet you could still fall into the category of the foolish man. And so it's not just about listening, is it? And so in the book of James, James chapter 2, 14, this is Jesus' brother. He wrote the book of James in the New Testament. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And then in verse 19, it says, you believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So what's he saying here? So it's possible to hear and even believe who Jesus is in a way that is equivalent to the demons believing who Jesus is. The demons know Jesus is real. And so there's something more to just hearing and believing that makes the difference between the wise man and the foolish man. And so let's look at the wise man again. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man. And so it's the doing of the deeds, it's the putting into practice that it is what shows the wisdom. And so when we hear the words of Jesus, when we hear the truth of the Bible, when we hear what God says to us, and we go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that's nice, that's good. I like it when people live, I like it when people are Christian and you know, they do the right things and they get like that. But it doesn't really apply to my life. Maybe it applies to some of my life. I'm a good person. Actually, that's the foolish man. What we should be saying is, no, what does is, what is the Bible say? Okay, so Jesus says that if you love me, you'll... Be obedient to me. You'll follow my commands. You'll do what I say. So when we read things in Scripture, when we hear things preached that are true, and we see them in the Bible, which is why I want people to have Bibles in front of them, because if I say something and it's not in here, then, then don't believe me. You need to see it for yourselves in Scripture. But when you see something in Scripture and you think, well, that doesn't really apply to me, you're being like the foolish man. That's not obedience. It's not following Jesus. And so... James 2, again in that same section in, in chapter verse 18, says, But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. 
Show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. And so again, it says, you believe that God is one, good, even the demons believe that, shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. This is tricky stuff, isn't it? Because we've been taught, you are saved by faith alone. Faith in Jesus. Just put your trust in Jesus and you're saved by that. And that is absolutely true. But when you're saved by that faith, something changes in your heart that you want to put into practice the things that your Lord, who you are saved by, and you have sworn your allegiance to, says that you should live like this. And so it's not the deeds that save us, which is what religion teaches. Well, if you're a good person, you do this, 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 and this, you will be saved. Actually, no, it's not that. It's, no, no, I am saved by Jesus. And we're going to look at how that happens in a minute. We'll get to that. But it's like, actually, if I'm saved by him and he's given his life for me, surely I want to follow him and be obedient to him. And so the deeds are the sign that you've actually got faith in what he's done. And so the way that we live really does matter. And so if you say, well, I believe in Jesus, but then you live a completely sinful life and ignore everything he says, you will have absolutely no confidence in your salvation. Now, I'm not saying you're not saved. That is between you and God. And and, and no one knows the human heart. God knows. And God knows if you really believe. And we all struggle with sin. So it's not that we are sinless, but the disposition of our heart is to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. And yet, as Christians, we still fail. It's interesting when Catherine shares things, she's done it a couple of times, and like, oh, and Thomas prayed, and then this happened, and it's like, I'm sitting there going, man, makes me sound like, you know, oh, wow, Thomas is really, I'm thinking, man, if you could see what I'm really like. <laughs> I don't want that illusion to take place where you think, oh, yeah, Thomas is just so godly. And maybe you don't think that. If you know me, you definitely don't. But, but the point is, I am a sinful man that, loves Jesus and is desperately trying to follow him in every way that I can and yet failing miserably all the time. And so it's not about getting it right, but when I sin, something happens in my heart that I just want to repent and I hate it. And I want to say, God, I'm so sorry. I hate that about me. Will you deal with that? Will you change me? And so the disposition is one of, Jesus, I want you to be Lord, not me. Because every time I sin, I'm stepping on the throne. Jesus, I've got this. Uh, I get you say do it that way. No, I'm going to do it this way. See how I make myself Lord? Or I say, no, Jesus, you're Lord. I want to do that thing, but please help me. My desires, they're disorientated here. They're not going where I know you want me to go. And it's why we need to know what God's word is. It's why we need to listen to good preaching. It's why we need to encourage one another and talk through our failures and our sins with each other and, and, and bring other people into our lives and have a church family that can speak truth over us when our hearts deceive us. Because our hearts do deceive us. It says that in the Bible. But it also says that God is greater than our hearts. God's really been speaking to me about that this week. In 1 John it says that, but he is greater than our hearts. In other words, God can overcome that deceit. And so... Let's go back to the foolish man again. So similarly to the wise man, he built a house. See how both men, they both heard Jesus and they both built a house. So that's what's going on. So again, in the, in the same story, he says, he built a house 
on the ground without a foundation. That's in Luke 6. The house is a representation of our lives. And in the story, the foolish man has a life that actually on the outside looks like a well-built house. It's why I say you can come to church and still be the foolish man. You can be a religious person. You can even read your Bible and pray. And, and yet somehow you're deceived and you're building a house that is not built on the solid foundation. Maybe you're building your house on your religious works. So again, you've got to hear what I'm not saying. It's not that we are saved by our deeds. We can, in fact, build our house on our deeds and think that we're saved by that and we're still building on a sandy foundation or no foundation. And we'll look at what the true foundation is in a moment. But then not just in this room, what about the other things that we build our lives on? What is it? What is the thing that Jesus could take away from you this morning that would make you turn your back on him? Think about that. Is there anything in your life that he's not allowed to touch? Is it your relationships? Is it your children? Your wealth? Your status? Your authority? Position? Is this something that your health, maybe? If you got sick, do you think, I'm, I'm not putting up with that? If he's Lord of your life, he has your life, it's his. To know Jesus, to trust Jesus, is to say, no, Jesus, I give you my life and I trust you with it more than I trust myself with it. And we looked all through that Peter series about suffering and how often living a godly life actually leads to suffering. And we're going we're gonna to see that in a moment. So what is it? Is there something this morning? Maybe the Holy Spirit's just put it on your heart. So God would just say, just offer that to Jesus this morning. Say, okay, God, I wouldn't. You can have that. It's yours. Trust him with it. I'm not saying he's going to take it from you. He's good. He's kind. He's compassionate. He gives us what we need, but he also takes away what we don't need. He rebukes us. He disciplines his children because he loves us. I love my children, and because I love them, I discipline them. Yeah, he's a God of wrath as well as love because you can't have wrath without love. The opposite of love is, is not anger, not wrath. The opposite of love is apathy. What would God be like if he didn't care? What kind of a father would I be if I didn't care what happened to my children? But no, if there is sin in their life, I want them to deal with it. I want to protect them. I want to shape them. I want them to live a good life and to be protected from the stupidity of this world and the things that they might do. God is the same. He loves us, so he rebukes us sometimes. And we need to be ready for that as Christians. He takes things away because he wants all of us. He wants every bit of our heart. So maybe you need to open your heart to him this morning and let him in to all those areas. What are the areas that are closed off to him? Just invite him into that now. Just a little story that Jesus told about a, a rich man. And I think it, it kind of demonstrates this kind of foolishness. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. I've gone off again. Still coming through? Okay, I lost the echo. Why did, and he says, what must, good teacher, he asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Shall not defraud, honor your mother and father. 
I mean, we all know the commandments, even if you don't know they're the Ten Commandments. You, you know that those things are wrong, right? And so Jesus is saying, well, you know the commandments, you know. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. I mean, he's lying, isn't he? <laughs> but he was a religious person, and he looked at himself, oh, yeah. Is there a danger that any of us are sitting there going, yeah, I'm a good person this morning? <laughs> Not Gemma, she said. There's a danger that we can think that. Am I a good person? The answer to that is no. The Bible's really clear that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's offensive, isn't it? Our culture hate that. You know, they think if there's something wrong in your life, it's because you're a victim or it's because of the way you're brought up or it's the culture. Actually, no, if there's stuff wrong in your life, often it's because of sin, either your own or someone else's, and a combination of both. We often treat ourselves far worse than any other people do because of our sin, because of the decisions we make. So this guy was proud. He thought he was good. That's why he called Jesus good teacher, and Jesus calls him out on that and says, why are you calling me good? Only God's good. He's not denying that he's good or that he's God. He's just saying only God's good. So actually, he's, he's agreeing with that assessment. But Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. I think he's being slightly sarcastic here. One thing you lack, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. So it's a real challenge, isn't it? It's like he thought he had the religious thing sorted out, and then just Jesus just calls him out on the thing that he was idolizing. And he's saying, actually, no, that's, that's the barrier between you and me. You don't, there's things in your life you don't want to give up for me. So he's calling him out on it. So you can see Jesus loved him um, and wanted to just speak truth into his life. And I hope that's what he's doing this morning to you. It might feel painful when Jesus touches on something and says, actually, you, need, you know that's wrong. You need to deal with it and give it to me now. I believe he's saying that to people. But he's doing it because he loves you. And he just wants to unpick your heart so he can get into it and give you everything that you need because he's good. And so let's look at the wise man again. He built his house upon the rock. It was a solid foundation, it was told. It says, uh, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine puts in practice like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So what does it mean to build your foundation on the rock? And this is what we're spend the rest of the time looking at. Um, there's a few uh, verses here um, that uh, I don't know if they will come up once. There we go. I'll do them one at a time. Um, it's really important to look at the Old Testament. I don't know how, how many of you have read the whole Bible. Put your hand up. Honestly, a moment. Okay. How many of you have read the Old Testament? So how many of you have read Genesis, Exodus, then got to Leviticus and gone, man, this is, <laughs> this is gory. And it talks about the law, and there's just blood everywhere. This is what we do. So, you know, you start beginning the year. Genesis, really interesting, isn't it? All the stories. And then Exodus, yeah, that's good about Moses and the Red Sea. Leviticus, here's the law, the grain offering and the sin offering, and the other offering and that offering. And you've got to kill a bull, and you've got to kill a goat, and you've got to spread the blood everywhere. And we get to it, and it's like, oh, man, it's just hard work. And yet there's a real purpose behind it. You see, the law was to show them where they were feeling, falling short, not to show them how to get it right with God. The way they got it right with God was to slaughter animals and spray blood everywhere. 
because that's what it cost every time they sinned. The weight of their sin against God was so horrific that it was only through the shedding of blood that they could be made right with God. And so the Old Testament law actually shows us what's required. And when we get there, it can be repulsive. It's like, what? God needs that? It's like, yeah. And yeah, it didn't deal with their sin. Because it really wasn't the true answer. It was the old covenant. It was the way the people of God were able to relate to God and to walk with him. But it was all pointing towards something else, a new covenant, where the shedding of God's own blood was going to pay the way for everyone's sin. And so all those sacrifices in themselves were not satisfactory. It needed something more. And so throughout the Old Testament... What you have is this imagery and everything, all these stories are building upon each other as we go. And so you'll see these repetitive stories of God's people being called out in faith, God revealing himself to them, often taking them through water and then bringing them out the other side. Often going through times of testing and then him coming in and then saving them again as they were disobedient and didn't trust him. And so what I want to look at is just the different uh, mentions of the rock in the Old Testament. We'll just skip through some of them. And uh, it begins in Exodus 17. So the people of God have come out of Egypt. It says the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. So God's literally just saved them, parted the Red Sea, rescued them out of Egypt. They're a bit thirsty and suddenly they're wondering if God's real, if he's going to do And we can be like that. You can have the most amazing moment right this morning. You can be worshiping God. Oh, Jesus, you're amazing. And you get home this afternoon, you get some bad news saying, oh, God, you're terrible. Why have you done this to me? And we're the same, is what I'm saying. And so they do this. Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I'll stand before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses does that. He strikes the rock, water comes out of it. Why am I telling you this? Because there is imagery in here. The whole of the Old Testament, this thing happened. It's a historical event. And yet God wants to show us a picture of what is to come. And so the reason the Old Testament repeats these stories over and over again is because he's trying to get it into us that he's painting a picture of the rock, Jesus, who is to come. And we'll look at why that's similar. Then in Genesis 49, so a little bit before that, Jacob prophesies over his sons, and he's talking about Joseph, who was, you know, you know, the story of Joseph went into Egypt, and it says, Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring whose branches climb over a wall. With bitterness, archers attack him. They shot at him with hostility, but his bow remained steady. His strong arms stay, stayed limber because the hand of the mighty one of Jacob, because of the shepherd, the rock of Israel. Again, you see, right at the beginning of the Bible, it's talking about this shepherd, this rock of Israel. This is 4,000 years before Jesus. Deuteronomy 32, so this is the last book of Moses. It says, My words descend like dew, like showers on new grass, like abundant rain on tender plants. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I will praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. And so when Jesus is telling this parable, you've got to remember that his hearers were Jews who would have known the Old Testament. They would have known the books of the law. They would have known that the rock is more than a rock. It's not about the foundations being built on something solid in the ground. Actually, the rock was God. 
Got to be clear to them. And then Psalm 18, David's song of praise. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and horn of my salvation. He is my stronghold, my refuge and my saviour. So you see how this rock imagery is all over it. And then we've just done 1 Peter. And so we've got 1 Peter. He's quoting the Old Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, and he's quoting um, Isaiah here. And he says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. Remember the song we sang this morning? It's really interesting, the songs that get chosen, because we didn't discuss this. But Lou's chosen this. Christ alone, cornerstone. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. So you can see that the wise man who built his house upon the rock is building his life on Jesus. The point of me going through those verses, and again, I want to encourage you to start to read your Old Testament. If you're a Christian and you know the New Testament well, and you look at the old and you think, oh, I'm not sure about this, I don't get God in it. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's a wonderful book. When you see it come together, it really builds your faith because these books were written thousands of years before Jesus was even alive, at least on earth as a human. And yet it reveals the truth about who he is, which is why when he came, a lot of the Jews were able to see who he was. And yet for some... They were spiritually blind. They couldn't see it. We don't want to be that. And so finally, part three, our foundations will be tested by a storm. Both the men in the story heard Jesus. Both built a house. Their lives may have even looked similar. But now both men are going to face a storm. And the storm's going to show the foundation of their lives. What storm is going to come into your life? The final storm is death. There will be a judgment day. There will be a day when we stand before Jesus. Unless he returns before you die, there will still be a judgment day. But the Bible assures us that there is a time coming when everyone will stand before Jesus and give an account for their lives. What are you going to do in that moment? What are you going to offer? So what is the foundation that you're building your life on? Is it Christianity? Is it religion? Is it being a good person? Is it... Some of that, but also some other things. And you think, well, if I just had this and just had a bigger house or more money or sort that thing out, then my life would be solid. Actually, storms can come and take away all of those things. They can take away your family. They can take away your health. And they probably will at some point. We've had it good in the West, but actually throughout history and around the world, it's, it's never been as good as it is now. And yet, we still face sickness. We still face death. We still face bankruptcy, the economy could just plummet and crumble. What is it that you're putting your hope in? Where are you building the foundations of your life? The answer, I hope, is Jesus. And yet we talked about him being obedient, the wise man. And the question is, so what does that mean? How do I, how do, I do that? If I'm not being legalistic and I'm not, I can't keep the law, we've already said that that we fall short of it. So what does it mean to be obedient? And so I want to finish by looking at Galatians chapter 5. It'd be really good if you can turn to it. It's in the New Testament, um, quite near the back, probably about 19 20ths of the way through, depending on your Bible. Um, and it's chapter 5, and it says this, Life by the Spirit. 
And actually, at the beginning, it says, for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So that's chapter one, verse one of chapter five. But Paul, who wrote the book of Galatians, he's talking to them about the law. They were trying to keep the law. They were, they were advocating circumcision, saying, actually, if, we, if you just do this, if you do these things, then you'll be right with God. And, and Paul's saying, no, that's foolish. Something more than that. And it says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But to not use your freedom to indulge in the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting, isn't it? If you bite and devour each other, watch out, you'll be destroyed by each other. So I say walk by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. So here's the, the disobedience. Here's the things that we struggle against. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet many of those things are, are quite tempting. They're quite available in this world, aren't they? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And so what Paul's saying is here is that there is something about being connected to Jesus, about trusting in him, about building your life on him, that in exchange he gives us his Holy Spirit. That when we spend time with Jesus, when we grow our relationship with him, the work of the Spirit in our life actually brings about the obedience that's required to not be the foolish builder. And so it's not about being a good person, but it's about having a relationship with God. It's about trusting in the work, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That he really did exist. That he really is God. That when he went to the cross and shed his blood, like in the Old Testament, all that shedding of blood, that satisfied the wrath of and justice of a good and holy and righteous God. And so how do we do that? We come to Jesus with open hands and we say, Jesus, will you take my sin? This is what I've got to offer you this morning. Not my obedience. I haven't got any obedience that I can offer you because it, it, it's not enough. But what I have got is my sin. Will you take my sin and will you go to the cross and will you die for it? And will you shed your blood for me so that the wrath of God that was sitting over me will fall on you. That's what it looks like to be obedient to Jesus. And in exchange, he gives us his Holy Spirit and he fills us up with all the goodness and righteousness that he has. So if you've done that, 
That's who you are before God this morning. If you've given your life to Jesus, say, Jesus, I want you to take my sin. I'm not good enough. And we need to do it every day in some ways. We, we, repent, we walk in repentance. We turn our back on the thing. Because, you know, the Spirit is at work. There's this stuff we're doing now that, you know, we're just not aware of that is an offense to God because he doesn't put it all on us at once. It's the work of sanctification. It's a process. So whatever those things are that God is putting on your life right now, in 20, 30 years' time, there'll be other stuff. And that's okay. It's not about being sinless because Jesus was sinless on our behalf. And so this morning as we finish, what we do is we come before God and say, God, just will you take my sin again? <laughs> and as you do that, will you make me clean? And he does. He promises to do that because his blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And you are clean. Whatever you've done yesterday, the day before, the week before, whatever you're thinking right now, it's like you can put your life in Jesus' hands, put your life in the rock, and he will forgive you, and he will save you, and he will cleanse you, and he will make you white. That's what it was all about. The law was there to show us how filthy we were. It even says even our good deeds are like filthy rags before God. So you've got no obedience that you can offer God this morning other than the obedience to give Jesus your sin and to follow him and to put your faith in him. And when you do that, his spirit comes and fills you. And I just want to share a final story from John chapter 4 because, again, it's talking about that rock with the water. And it says, Jesus answered us. So he's talking to the woman by the well, if you know the story. And so he's gone out to a Samaritan woman talks about her adulterous past and her relationships and all the things that's gone on in her life. And he sat there with her in the middle of the day because she's basically ashamed. And they're having a conversation. And she's amazed that he's even speaking to her because she, he's a Jewish rabbi and she's a Samaritan who was seen to be as unclean people to the Jews. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, so he's asked her for some water, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman says, you've got nothing to draw with and the well is deep. She's not getting it. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I will give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then finally, in the book of Revelation, right at the end of the Bible, it gives us this picture of what is to come. And there's this picture of heaven. When heaven and earth come together, Jesus is going to come and redeem the earth. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. It's more than one tree. Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. See, this living water comes to us now already by the Holy Spirit. That was the, the living water that Jesus was going to pour out. He said, it's better that I go because then the Spirit will be poured out on us. So as we finish this morning, the, the, the thing that you need in your life to gain obedience is the fruit of the Spirit. And you can't make fruit grow. If you say to a tree, grow fruit now, it doesn't work. But what do you do? You put it in the right soil. You feed it, you water it, you tend it, you prune it. And it's cutting bits off that it doesn't need, that's stunting its growth. That's what God's doing to us. That by being here this morning, you're putting yourself in good soil, I hope. By reading your Bible, you're feeding yourself. 
And when you do that in your relationship with other Christians, fruit starts to appear in your life. Maybe little bits of fruit to start with. But as the tree gets bigger, it produces more. That's the image of obedience. That's what it is. And, and you're not doing any of it. You're just putting yourself in the right place, which is in a relationship with Jesus. Are you doing that this morning? Have you trusted him with your life, with your salvation? If you can trust him with your salvation, what else in your life do you need to trust him with? So why don't we stand? We're going to come back and, and just sing some worship to Jesus. I'm going to pray for us, ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill us. I feel that if, if you want prayer this morning, just for the Spirit to fill you, I'd love to lay hands on you, Guy, Will as well, Catherine. Just pray for the Spirit to fill you. So yeah, as we worship, maybe just come forward. I know it's hard to do that sometimes. It feels a bit embarrassing. Just, I encourage you, just do it. Get over yourselves. Come out. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's, if you're up for that, sorry, I don't want to be rude. Um, but I just, I'd love to pray and just ask God's Spirit to fill you. And there's something about the laying on of hands that does that. So if you just feel you need more of the Spirit as we sing now, just, just walk up the front here and one of us just pray. We'll be, we'll be gentle. So yeah, Father God, I pray we you send your Spirit again, Lord. We need you, Jesus. <laughs> we cannot live without you, Lord. We've got nothing to offer you. Even our good deeds are like filthy rags in your sight, Lord, because of our sin. And yet, Jesus, you take those filthy rags and you give us garments that are white as snow. That we're going to be able to stand before your throne one day, Lord, and you're going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. And all we did was trust you and give you our sin. Lord, will you humble us this morning to do that, Lord? It's that simple. And yet it took everything for it to happen, Lord. It took your son to die on the cross. Jesus, thank you that you went there willingly, joyfully, because you love us so much, Lord. Will people know your love right now? Holy Spirit, just come and touch people's hearts, Lord, where that pain is, where that hurt is, where that rejection is, where that fear is, Lord, where you've cast out fear. Like I said earlier, perfect love casts out fear. Lord, your love for us is perfect. Will fear go out of this room this morning, I pray. Jesus, come and fill us as we worship now, Lord, where we open the doors of our hearts to you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's worship him. Come and get prayer as we sing.